Last week, shortly after we concluded our outdoor services here at Highlands Renton, more riots broke out in downtown Seattle, and a fire was set to a Starbucks, which is on the first floor of an apartment building where families with children live. This was done in the name of justice. It's an act of injustice done in the name of justice, and it proves this ancient book of Proverbs, thousands of years old, ever relevant. Proverbs 29.8, mockers inflame a city, but the wise turn away anger. Any statement about justice unavoidably, unavoidably is a theistic statement. You're appealing to a divine authority when you say that rights exist. When you say that an injustice has been done, you're saying that a promise has been broken. Well, who ultimately made that promise and what gives that promise any authority? When you say that an injustice has been done, you say that a right has been violated. Well, who gave that right and what makes it legitimate? Unavoidably, unavoidably, all of these statements about justice are theological. In fact, our whole culture, our whole society, and our freedoms are all built on a theological argument that all men are created equal. This, this, this truth is self-evident, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, drawing their just powers from the consent of the governed. We are endowed by God with our rights. That is a theological argument, and that's where all of our culture comes from. But we as a culture, we as a society, have now fired God as the judge. We have put nothing in his place, and now we're crying out for justice. We fired the judge, guys. We have stripped the word justice of all meaning, and now we're abusing it. And we've replaced it with cheap justice, with virtue signaling justice, justice that doesn't actually do anything, anything to rectify the wrongs, that doesn't acknowledge one's own wrongdoing in any right whatsoever at all, and that only seeks to elevate the self. Think of me as virtuous. Think of me as enlightened. Think of me as good without actually solving the problem. That is cheap justice. I propose that we return to God's definition of justice. It is actually stricter than our definition of justice. God has the authority to enforce it because unlike the unruly mob, he's actually perfect. Unlike the hypocritical mob that would dox and character assassinate anybody who steps remotely out of line without due process and with utter impunity, God actually has the right to judge us because God is actually perfect. Moreover, God's definition of justice eats ours for lunch because he actually will get his way. And his way is not based purely in retribution. It's not based in malicious intent and sadism and the desire to inflict pain and suffering. Rather, it is the desire to make right that which is wrong. And he will do it and he will reign for eternity, forever in heaven. That is meaningful justice. That is actual justice. And so I propose that we return to our roots the Mayflower Compact, made in the midst of a mutiny on board a ship that was headed to the new world, made the compact that they would abide by the Christian worldview. The objections that they had ultimately, fast forward to the revolution, were theological in nature. It was a spiritual case against the crown. It was even called the Presbyterian Revolt on the other side of the pond. 
The black robe regiment was comprised of Presbyterian and Baptist pastors wearing their black Genevan robes, preaching on freedom in Christ and then grabbing their muskets and going to war. The Judeo-Christian worldview is what inspired the whole American idea. Now, it was far from a utopia. And the people who tried to enact this idea had grotesque hypocrisy themselves. To write the words, all men are created equal while owning slaves, proves that you're not living up to the very standard that you're writing. But the idea itself remains incorruptible. Because it's true. All men are created equal. Even if the men who penned those words didn't live up to them, they're still true. And this is the only nation in the world that was built on that radical theological argument that you're not dispensed your rights from a despot or a tyrant, a dictator on a throne somewhere who has his own sin. Rather, rather, you were born with your rights, that you were endowed by your creator with these rights. It's why people, when giving testimony in court, put their hands on the word of God, because this has been our standard for truth since the beginning. It's why we say it is in God that we trust. And even atheists among the founders still signed this theological argument because they knew that only the Judeo-Christian worldview could produce such a nation as this one. There's no other religious worldview that could produce such freedoms as these. And the result has been the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. It is time for us to return to the true definition of justice, to dispense with the cheap justice that seeks to virtue signaling while committing acts of injustice. And it is time for us to instead embrace justice and justification before God. Justification is a theological term. It says that even though my skeptical friend, my not yet a Christian friend, you and I have sin and we're standing before the judge, we could be pronounced innocent because the atoning punishment for our sin is placed upon Jesus. God sets the penalty for sin and then pays it in full himself. So our justification is not a miscarriage of justice, but is an act of mercy and grace from God. That though we are sinners, we may be justified before God. So in the words of Amos, the prophet in chapter five, let justice flow but let it begin in our hearts. Let justice flow like a river, but let it start right here. Are you ready for that? That's gonna be hard. Our hearts already lay open before God. Let justice be done, beginning right here. Solomon was writing and speaking to his sons. It wouldn't ultimately turn out the way that he'd hoped, but he was grooming his sons to take over as the king, future kings of Israel. Now, because of Solomon's own sin, the kingdom will be fractured. But in the meantime, as he wrote Proverbs, he was grooming them. And so that gives us a contextual lens that we have to interpret scripture through because it was written in a monarchical context and we're reading it today in a free republic, meaning it was written by a king speaking to future kings and we're interpreting it today in a world that has no king. So we have to contextualize it a little bit. Moreover, you're going to find then that many of these words, as they were intended to groom future government leaders, are actually going to apply directly to governmental leaders. 
Proverbs 21, 13, the one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. Right at the very core of the discussion about justice is a discussion about inequality. And that inequality is never more clear when it comes to matters of economic disparity. So this obligation to care for the poor is placed primarily upon us as believers. Right? This, this is a calling that comes inextricably linked to the gospel itself. That is not a social justice gospel to say that because, because our faith is legitimate, it's accompanied by actions to meet the needs of the people who are around us. That the love of God can't be in us if we don't have compassion for those who are in need. Richard Stearns wrote a great book, former uh, president of World Vision, wrote a great book on this called The Whole in Our Gospel. Be careful not to take this too far as if to say that you are not saved if you don't do righteous acts that care for the poor or as if you could care for the poor in such a way that you could be saved. Rather, because you're saved, you care for the poor. And because you're a Christian, you help meet the needs of people who are in great need. Thank you, Highlands Community Church, for your generosity, your continued giving because you've enabled us in a very difficult time to be able to meet urgent needs. And it's beautiful to see. It's absolutely incredible. Because of your giving to benevolence, we've been able to meet urgent needs right here in our community. Absolutely amazing to see. I'm so blessed by what I, by what I see. I'm so honored to be a part of this incredible church where ministries have been born from it that are the most effective in Seattle at actually ending homelessness for people. Like Vision House, thank you. John and Susan, for your incredible ministry. The ministry that was born right here from this church, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It actually ends homelessness for the women and children who are a part of it. And when you give to Benevolence, a Highlands Community Church, you're helping fund Vision House. I'm so proud as well. We have, we have multiple people at our church who are part of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. What's up, Chris? We love you, man. It, the, these are the most effective organizations around us. And they're, 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 these are two of many who in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God, because of the gospel, meet the needs of the poor. Our objective is to not only meet physical needs, but also meet spiritual needs, because sometimes those physical needs are brought about by a spiritual problem, i.e. substance abuse. But our objective is not only to share the gospel, it is also to meet physical needs. See James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Our faith in Christ is legitimate, and therefore it is accompanied by such actions. Likewise, 1 John three sixteen. Hear this one again. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech. And the Jesse Campbell translation or tweets, but in action and in truth. We care for the poor because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a symptom, an outflow, a side effect of our own innate conversion by the gospel. Here are two critical differences then in the way that the church meets the needs of the poor versus the virtue signaling mob. We're not doing it for our own glory. And so we won't do it in a way that's showy. Matthew chapter six, listen to Jesus. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Did you know this just in, guys. Studies have shown it is actually possible to do something to help somebody in need and not post a selfie while you do it. Not even joking. I know a guy who did it once. It's totally possible. When you do something for the sake of looking virtuous and you post a selfie about it, the likes that you get on that selfie are your full reward. Enjoy it, I guess. If you're giving to the poor is to make yourself look virtuous, that's all you're going to get out of it. But if you're giving to the poor is motivated by a gospel love and done for the glory of God, the Father will reward you for that. This is spoken by Jesus himself, Matthew chapter six. Now, Proverbs 21, 13 and Proverbs 29, eight, among numerous other Proverbs on caring for the poor were originally directed at future kings to see to it that they would look after the poor in their kingdoms well. Now, as a word of context, the, 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 the poor in Solomon's context were way worse off than the poor in our context. So the poverty of the poor in a monarchy reflected more directly on the king's own negligence than does the poverty of the poor in a free republic such as ours. It is unfortunate, but it is true that some, not all of the poor, are poor because of their choices. Now, we live in a taxed society and a portion of our tax dollars is allocated to meet the needs of the poor, which means then that these words of proverb, speaking about wisdom on caring for the poor, originally intended for government leaders, applies to you, King County, U.S. government. While we will answer to God for how well we respect governing authorities, and so far as their sphere of influence lies, may it never encroach upon the gospel, or maybe become sanctified outlaws if it does. But we know that we will answer to God for how well we've submitted to governing authorities. And we know that governing authorities will answer to God for how well they've cared for the poor. You may not believe in God, but you, you bear a spiritual obligation before him because he cares about how you care for the poor. And Seattle, we're failing at this. We're failing at this. We have failed to meet the needs of the poor. Churches do a way better job with 10% of some people's money given voluntarily than the U.S. government does with 32% of an entire tax bracket's money taken forcibly. Uncle Sam, we're doing this better than you. Would you entrust churches? Would you lower taxes so that people would give charitably and be able to give even more so that it'd be done in a way that is actually efficient, actually leads to spiritual transformation in lives? actually sets people free from addiction that actually, actually is motivated by love. However, this is our current reality, Highlands. 
And while I'm incredibly proud of Christian ministries that have used the gospel along with God-rewarded charitable contributions from Christians who give not out of coercion from a government threat, but out of reverence for Christ, our current tax structure still demands this of individuals and the pitiful results nationwide speak for themselves, especially here in Seattle, see every interstate median in the city. King County, these proverbs are addressing you directly. Public servants, city leaders, this is what God has to say on the matter. The book of Proverbs should be required reading for anybody aspiring unto public office, contextualized for a republic. Members of Highlands, if God's calling you to run for public office, we need you. Proverbs 28.2, when a land is in rebellion, it has many rulers, but with a discerning and knowledgeable person, it endures. This is leadership 101, man. Governmental structure 101. The chaos and rebellion of a land that is run by a hydra of multiple leaders with conflicting visions is given in stark juxtaposition with the peace, the clear leadership, the enduring prosperity of a land that is ruled by clear leadership. Right? We know that he's speaking in the context of a monarchical rule, but it goes way beyond that. A ship is just simply way worse off with two captains than it is with one. And this leader in the second half of the couplet of Proverbs 28.2, with the discerning and knowledgeable person it endures, speaks to somebody whose worldview is founded upon God, upon wisdom. What is the whole theme of the book of Proverbs? that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and discipline. The, the knowledge and the discernment of the leader in the second half of the couplet is rooted in the fear of the Lord. He has discernment, she has knowledge, and as a result, their leadership endures. A given culture rises or falls on its leadership. When there's chaos in the leadership, there's chaos in the culture. Pray for our government leaders that God would work on their hearts to bring about discernment and knowledge. King County, we're praying for you at Highlands Community Church. Proverbs 28.3, a destitute leader, literally translated from the Hebrew, a wicked man who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leads the leaves no food. This is the very next verse from what we just, just read. This driving rain could be interpreted as a storm that is destructive or a heavy rain that should have borne forth a harvest, but didn't. When you're in leadership, you have the opportunity to bring about prosperity for the people who are, who are poor in your land. And when you don't, it reflects upon you. There will be results that speak for themselves. In our context, we can see quite clearly, if a man will not work, he will not eat. Now, regarding those among the poor, who would seek to dupe you as a Christian or deceive you. This is a risk, isn't it? But it's, it's, a, it's a risk worth taking. I know that it can be tricky because you don't want to fund somebody's substance abuse problem. They're standing there on the side of the road with this cardboard sign. So here's what my family and I have done. Right, I met with the author of a book called Under the Overpass. And had some things to say to the author about the book because he was kind of pretending to be homeless, like he wasn't actually homeless. And so it kind of was built on a lie, but he still came out with some good teachings. And one of them was this, 
Go to McDonald's. It's going to hold the lineup for a while, but it's worth it. Stock up on a bunch of gift cards because this man experienced this from within the homeless community himself that even if the gift card isn't used by the person you give it to, sometimes it'll be bartered for drugs. Somebody somewhere in that community can only use that for food at some point. So I, I know that, I know that it's, it's tricky sometimes to try to give to a given ministry even, for example, like a charitable organization, a, a homeless organization, because you don't know what percentage of what you're giving is actually going to impact the people involved. And sometimes when you want to give directly to somebody who's in need, you don't know if you're just helping fund an addiction, which is actually hurting them. And so this is one, this is one thing that we do, and we give to benevolence at Highlands. We tithe and more at Highlands. But we also stay stocked up on restaurant gift cards for when you see an urgent need. Proverbs 28.4, those who reject the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law pit themselves against them. Doesn't that sound like much of what's happening in our culture right now? The evil do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Better the poor person who lives with integrity than the rich one who distorts right and wrong. When Solomon when Solomon used the words, those who reject the law, here's, here's one thing I can say for sure was on his heart. It is the law from God, not only the collective larger law from Moses, but definitely this law. Do not have other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet. That's a really comprehensive set of laws. And it was given by God to ancient Israel. So when Solomon uses the words, those who reject the law. He's talking about people who reject these laws that forbid murder and covetousness and adultery and theft. Those who reject the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law pit themselves against them. It causes division among law keepers and law breakers. This authoritative revelation from God, wherein he has revealed himself. He's not hidden himself, Richard Dawkins. He has revealed himself and spoken plainly in his word. Revelational epistemology, see Cornelius Van Til. With this God-revealed law, we don't have to guess and invent and contrive the authoritative origin for justice itself. God's already given it. This is the idea behind theonomy, which is a Christian idea that draws upon Old Testament laws as the basis for laws in our society today. It's a whole vast field of study. It's worth reading. Because Christians know the law of God in the Old Testament and know the law of God to love him and love others in the New Testament, we understand justice. We know where justice came from. We know why we love others. They're made in the image of God. We've been commanded to do this. We know that we love God first. And because we can look a holy God in the face in judgment one day because our sins are atoned for, we need not fear our fellow man. We love others as we love ourselves because we know that we have value as children of God made in his image, atoned for by Christ's sacrifice on the cross and secured in our victory forevermore by his resurrection from the dead. We understand the why behind justice and we have hope for a greater eternal sense of justice to come. We know that every justice system instituted among men and run by men and women is ultimately going to fail at some point. But the greater sense of justice that will never fail is that of the Lord who will reign, who will destroy evil forever 
one day, those who understand the law of God know justice, but those who do not will never understand justice. Yeah, but Jesse, the things that you're stepping into here sound like a breach of separation of church and state, right? I get it. You're a Christian. You believe the law of God, but now you're, you're, you're trying to blur the lines between what God said is the law and then what local government or the country says should be the law. Did you know that the, the intent of separation of church and state always has been and currently is to protect the church from encroachment from the state. Henry VIII was the de facto head of the Church of England. He wanted to secure a male heir. He divorced his wife, Catherine of Aragon, so that he could marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn. This stripped the Pope of authority. And this led to, this led to him taking over the whole Church of England. And it allowed him to use the considerable amount of funds that have been amassed within the Church of England since its original founding by Augustine of Canterbury, not Augustine of Hippo, that's a different guy, Augustine of Canterbury in 597. This led to the dissolution of monasteries and that funded many of Henry VIII's war efforts throughout the 1540s. Henry VIII was the head of this church, the impetus was corrupt and the results were disastrous. And knowing well of legends such as these, the founders, thought that the separation of church and state was important for the church's sake, knowing full well that the whole constitution was built on a theological idea that was borrowed from the church. The church gives the state the moral authority to make laws. The state takes those laws, takes that theological idea and brings about the most prosperous nation in history. State gradually severs moral tethers to the church. State goes on to enforce federally funded abortion, targeting Christians who don't comply, citing ironically the separation of church and state. The state becomes a church where the godless worship. Indeed, evil do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand everything. The whole idea of the separation of church and state was drawing from Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Association to protect the church from encroachment from the state. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The whole idea of separation of church and state was to protect the church from the state, but the church at the onset, at the founding, gave the Judeo-Christian worldview, the theological argument that we're given our rights by God. So it's good for the state that the church provided the impetus, the definition for justice. We as a society have gone away from that sense of justice. And did you know that today our hearts are open before God? He sees the injustices that we do as individuals. He sees the injustices that pervade our society today. And we'll all give an account before him. My prayer is that you'd stand before him as your savior and not only as your judge. Proverbs 28, 15. A wicked ruler over a helpless people is like a roaring lion or a charging bear. A leader who lacks understanding is very oppressive, but one who hates dishonest prophet prolongs his life. 
man, don't you wish the book of Proverbs were required reading for everybody going for public office? Proverbs 29, verse 7, the righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. Mockers inflame a city, but the wise turn away anger. If a wise person goes to court with a fool, there will be ranting and raving, but no resolution. Bloodthirsty men hate an honest person, but the upright care about him. Christian, maintain your integrity as a Christian now more than ever. Because we need, we need Christians with solid testimonies and clear consciences to speak out the only hope that we have. Because our cheap brand of justice amounts to legalism. Virtue signaling is the new Pharisee way of thought. Because while we stand upon these beautiful teachings and we know that they're true, we know that they're accurate, we're surrounded by people who have given way to a reiteration of an ancient false teaching, legalism. People who virtue signal and just try to look virtuous, look like they care, look like they're making a difference while having no, no measurable results whatsoever at all, just trying to elevate the self, not addressing the core issue, not actually offering a solution, not doing anything to transform the heart, are reiterating the same fallacious thinking of the Pharisees of old, who just try to make themselves look virtuous, look righteous. They don't actually do anything. They don't actually solve the core issue, and there's no transformation of the heart. Virtue signaling is our modern day sense of justice. And it is the new iteration of the Pharisees' legalism. Virtue signaling is legalism reiterated. We need Christians who with clear consciences can point to the justice of God before whom our hearts are open. Proverbs 29, 18, without revelation, people run wild, but one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Consider the fruits of a culture untethered from an authoritative moral revelation. If we lack revelation, or literally translated from the Hebrew, vision, people run wild. People are currently running wild. Why is that? Because we have abandoned God's divine revelation. If a culture will not submit to the laws of God that are written upon our hearts, then we'll submit to the chaos of a false God. According to Romans 13, the government is instituted as a servant of God to punish evil, to enforce contracts, and to organize for defense. That's it. As a result of these Christian views of a limited government, there is even a cry among the atheist community to return to the Christian worldview. There were some signers on the declaration who didn't fully submit to God as Lord in their lives, but they knew that this Christian idea would produce a, a culture and a society that no other religion could. There's no other religious worldview that could lead to the prosperity and the freedoms that we've enjoyed as Americans since our founding, right? That, that we've grown and adapted to over time, that we fought a war to secure for African-Americans, that, that there's no other nation that would do that. There's no other worldview that would, that would motivate that. And for that reason, there, were, there was a generation of atheists, even at the time of the founding, who signed their names to something that bore an appeal to the authority of a God in whom they didn't believe. And we need more atheists like that today. And that's actually happening. There's a new cry among atheists for us to return to at least a nominal affiliation with the moral authority of Christianity. Proverbs 29, 27, an unjust person is detestable to the righteous and one whose way is upright is detestable to the wicked. You're gonna find that if you stand by true justice with integrity and you don't bear false witness, that this is gonna be detestable to the wicked. 
This is not actually an objective conversation that you're having. When you refuse to join in our rallying cry to bear false witness against somebody, I see last week's sermon on the consequences of bearing false witness, you're going to encounter somebody who pretends to be objective, but because of the sin nature, cannot be. Greg Bonson, spelled B-A-H-N-S-E-N, lectured on the myth of neutrality. They would pretend to be neutral, but they're not because of the sin nature. They struggle with the same sin nature with which we were born. And as a result, it's impossible for them to have an objective view of the truth. This is why the way of the upright is detestable to the wicked. And the wicked always thinks he or she is the good guy. I want to close with this one, Proverbs 15, 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more human hearts. Sheol was the place of the dead. All right, take a look at this diagram. This is the way the afterlife looked in my interpretation in the Old Testament sense. If you ask an Orthodox Jew today what happens when you die, you'll get mixed answers. It's because of Sheol. Sheol was a place of the dead for both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the followers of Yahweh and adherents to the Old Testament law and people who denied Yahweh as God or followed other gods. The Greek word for Sheol is Hades, okay? So if you grew up in the 90s and you remember the cartoon, with Hercules and the guy with the blue flaming hair, right? It's not actually what Hades is. Hades is the Greek word for Sheol, the place of the dead. There were two experiences within Sheol. One of them was Abraham's embrace. I say that because it's a less awkward word than bosom. (laughs) See this in Ezekiel 16 and 17 in Jonah chapter two. There was a chasm separating these two experiences. See Luke chapter 16. And the lower part, the place of suffering within Sheol was called Tartarus. See 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. And then something happened on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. What did he say to the thief next to him? All right, see John 19, 30 and Matthew 27, 52 and 53. Today you will be with me in paradise. See Luke 23, 43, Revelation 1, 18, and 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. And so now the Abraham's embrace, the Old Testament gives way after Jesus's work upon the cross to paradise. We call heaven. Now, those who were in Tartarus would then go to Gehenna or hell. See Matthew 10, 28, or Mark 9, 47 through 48. Those in paradise and those in Gehenna or hell then experience one of two things. We experience the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, and the Bema seat judgment. If you're a believer, the Bema seat judgment for the believer is like this list of everything you've been pardoned for, pardoned for, pardoned for, pardoned for. See Romans 14, 10 10 through 12, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. This is where the various crowns promised to those who seek the Lord, who are faithful to the Lord, are administered. And this gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. See 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, wherein Paul, speaking in the third person, describes having seen the third heaven. What in the world does he mean by the third heaven? This is what I propose. From Abraham's embrace in Sheol to paradise to the new heaven and the new earth. One, two, three. I believe that Paul is describing a vision that he got of heaven and eternity future. However, for those who were in Gehenna or hell, they will stand before the day of the Lord, the great white throne judgment. See Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. This is where those who have denied Christ get fair treatment for their sin. See Revelation 21 verse 8 describes a burning lake of sulfur. And then these two parallels run forward for eternity, the new heaven and the new earth the lake of sulfur. This is justice. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. 
Sheol is the place of the dead in the Old Testament context wherein Proverbs was written. Abaddon is a New Testament term. See Revelation 9, 11. It's an open abyss, a chasm from which God's wrath comes out. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more do our hearts? I want to speak directly to the governmental leadership of Seattle. You abandon your duty unto justice. And as a result, more than one young African-American person was murdered. Tragically, ironically, under the words graffiti on a wall, Black Lives Matter when you abandoned your precinct and refused to administer justice, you failed with what you were entrusted to do. And I know that this has eaten your consciences alive, but there's hope. There's hope. I know that it's been eating you alive but you could have a clear conscience before God and man regarding with your own sin. If you would repent and confess that Jesus is Lord, then your own failures as a public servant would be pardoned before God and your own personal sins would be forgiven. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more do men's hearts? God, God knows all the sins of my past. He knows my heart. So do the elders of Highlands Community Church. They know about my sins. God knows about your sins. He knows that your heart is bare open before him. Would you lean upon his mercy, call upon his grace, have every last one of your sins atoned for, be saved, be saved, be saved, and then bring about something that Seattle hasn't known before. Actual justice by God's definition and not the ever-shifting demands of the insatiable mob before whom you kowtowed and to whom you surrendered, whose applause you wanted. Look at what happened. Would you repent? Would you confess? Would you find hope in Jesus? And then would you govern rightly? And I want to speak to members of Highlands Community Church. You may not have been born into a crown, but you, because you've been born into a society wherein it's possible to run for public office, you bear an obligation if God's calling you to do that. How many generations of Christians past were eaten alive in the Colosseum because they refused to cry out, Kaiser, Kyrgios, Caesar is Lord. How many generations of Christians past were unable to stop the beast, the governmental authority that oppressed them and persecuted them and publicly murdered them. Here you sit in a society that openly invites citizens to run for public office. If God has laid this calling upon your heart, it's because we need you, we need you, we need you. Members of Highlands Community Church who are called to run for public office, I want you to step up. There may not be very many Christians in Seattle, but we are here. This is a calling of God. Because this teaching applies to governmental authorities and because it speaks to us as believers individually, I want us to close by calling for justice to flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Amos 5, 24. We know that God will bring about, 1 John 3, 8, destruction to the work of the devil, that he rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey to be slain, but he will one day ride in on a war horse to slay evil forevermore and to bring about justice, justice, justice forevermore. 
What more important side of history to be on the right side of than that day when Jesus brings about justice? If you're gonna cry out for justice, make sure you're justified yourself, beginning right here and now before a holy God. Would you, following the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate judge before whom we will all give an account one day. Would you call out to him for mercy? Have your sin atoned for? And then invite others into the same justice of God. Right here and now, this is the moment that you, like me, though you are a sinner, may be justified before the judge. Pray with me now. God, I want justice to flow in our culture, in our streets. I want to see that which is wrong made right. But God, I know it's got to begin right here. Let justice flow, but let it flow here. I am a sinner. I have sinned before a holy God. And when I call out the injustices committed by others, I point out my own hypocrisy too. When I say that I want judgment done for others for their wrongs, but I want to excuse my own, Lord, I confess my own sin unwittingly. So let me do it right here and now. Drawn upon by your spirit, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But God, the free gift that you offer is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, in John 14, 6, when you said that you are the way and the truth and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. I believe that you are the ultimate bringer of justice, that the book of Revelation is true, that you are the judge, that you are the justice bringer, and I must stand before you. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before you, God. How much more does my heart right now? I'm drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God. I believe in you, oh God. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say that out loud right now? Say, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe, oh God, that you rose Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let justice flow and let it begin with me, a sinner justified before God. And then let it flow into our streets. Would you bring revival here, God, with the justice that comes to Seattle and our nation come because of revival, God. Call sinners to repentance. Call the dead to life, oh God. Call us from hopelessness to hope, from sin to repentance, death to life, the grave to heaven. Oh God, would you do this and you'll get all the glory, all the credit. Oh God, you are able. We pray that you will and you've begun right here in my heart today. In Jesus' name, let justice flow. Amen.